for years, I was afraid to talk about some of my struggles, some of the things that had happened to me as well as many of the things that I had done. I was certain that I would be written off, rejected, abandoned. It, it's a longer story than I'll write here, but as a result of my experience, I decided I would provide safe space where no one, no one in my closest sphere of influence would feel as much as was possible on my end, afraid to approach me with the skeletons they had in their closet like I had been afraid to approach others before. I wanted to embody grace. Contemplating how to do that, how to embody grace, led me to 1 John 4.18, a verse I pondered over and over for almost a solid year. It's a passage I'm trying to implement in my interpersonal relationships, in my writing, and from any stage or platform from which I speak. Further, it has everything to do with the cure for that guilt-shame duo that we discussed in the previous talk. Now, here are two translations of that 1 John 4.18 verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That's the English Standard Version. And here's the Passion Translation. Love never brings fear. For fear is always related to punishment, but love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Now for the next few minutes, I want to highlight three concepts from that verse. Uh, number one, perfect love. Number two, casts out fear. Number three, fear reveals that we've not yet been perfected in love. And then after that, we'll wrap it with a bow and resolve that moral injury issue, hopefully from the previous talk. It, at least we'll do it um, easier said than done, right? First, let's do this. Let's define what perfect means because we're talking about perfect love. Now, the word used in this passage, perfect love cast out fear, it doesn't infer we'll always love each other without flaw. Rather, it suggests we will love each other maturely to the full capacity that we can love. The, the Greek word perfect here is teleos. It doesn't mean without error, as we most often use the word perfect in English. Rather, it means reaching full potential. We find the word in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says, uh, Him, Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may, may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, that we may present everyone teleos in Christ. Um, John also wrote in Greek like Paul, uh, and he places the same word in 1 John 1. Uh, 4.18. So he writes about love that reaches full potential or fulfills the purpose for which it was created. You see, in the same way Paul longed for his congregants to live their purpose and reveal their potential on a personal level, John wants us to love our purpose. That, that is, he wants us to, uh, to love in a way that is whole, that is complete, that is full of life. And since the Spirit indwells us in His fullness, that is our capacity. It's to deliver the very heart of the Father to the world in which we live. What does that kind of look, love look like? Well, you read the verse again. John describes it. A telios love, a perfect love, a love that reaches its full capacity, pushes out fear, and it makes massive space for grace. Uh, or, a la 1 Corinthians, telios love 
It hopes for the best. It believes the best. It never fails. Even when the person being loved clearly falters like we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. In fact, this kind of love, it keeps no record of wrongs at all. It actually endures and abounds all the more aggressively when sin and wrong is present, according to Romans 6, 1. Telios love is the antidote for hard things. Well, second, let's discuss what this cast out fear means. John tells us that mature love, the love that reaches its full potential, it dominates fear. It doesn't incite fear or insecurity, it eliminates it. As such, Telios love makes people feel safe. Now, I reviewed several translations to see how they translate that term, casts out, for cast out fear. Here are four ways translators describe what perfect Telios love does. Uh, the NIV says, drives out fear. Uh, the NLT, New Living Translation, says perfect love expels all fear. Uh, the ESV says casts out fear. And the ISV says banishes fear. So drives out, expels, casts out, banishes. In other words, this kind of love is strong. It's one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's more potent than PTSD. It's more massive than moral injury. It shudders shame. Now, here's how intensely it creates security. The same word used of cast out fear, it's the same verbiage used throughout the New Testament to describe how Jesus treated demons. When he bumped into them, they had no choice but to leave. He expelled them. He forced them to go. He eliminated them. It's a great analogy because mature love, the God kind of love, does the exact same thing to condemnation, to fear, and to shame. Perfect love drives away fear with the same passion. Fear has no choice but to leave when people are loved in this way. Now, pause, step back, do a heart check, and be honest with me. This is the exact opposite of what many people experience when they come in contact with our moral systems of right and wrong, our religious routines, and our belief systems about making the world a better place. Rather than driving fear away from the relationship and communicating, hey, come in close. Tell me what's really happening. We often invite fear and we place fear on the person like a cloak of shame. They already feel devastated, yet we want to make them feel even more morally broken as we think that that will safeguard them from breaking that universal subset of fact number three rules again. It seems odd once you kind of really logically take a look at it, doesn't it? I mean, I've done it in parenting. I've done it in preaching. I've done it in relationships. We often like it, or at least I have, when others have a healthy measure of fear because it allows us to control the interaction and maintain the upper hand. We're afraid that if they don't experience some degree of fear, they might not see how desperately they need grace. They might not change. They might not get their stuff together. We might not be able to control them. But think practically about the environment surrounding Jesus. Tax collectors not only felt comfortable talking with him, they felt confident enough in his love to invite their wayward friends to a party at which he would be present. Or women who earned their money in licentious ways knew that he would receive them. They were so certain they would be accepted by him that they barged into dinners where they weren't invited. Lepers. Uh, people the law demanded stay away from others actually approached Jesus so that he might touch them. 
Roman soldiers, those who occupied the Jewish areas like warlords, keeping Jesus and his people in physical subservience, they were able to look beyond the us-versus-you dilemma and approach him for personal needs. Jesus commended and rewarded their great faith, but they were invited by his love. People that were considered unclean and excluded from the temple, like women with the flow of blood, and then believed to be so unclean that they would make others ceremonially unclean by touching them, they boldly moved through the crowds and they touched Jesus. They knew that they would be embraced. Uh, One more example, uh, religious leaders, they approached him too. Like men like Jairus, whose daughter was at death's door, he abandoned protocol and he actually knelt before Jesus publicly, imploring him to visit her. And then Nicodemus, one of the elite Pharisees, he came to Jesus. Notably, most of these people carried some obvious skeleton that stood in direct opposition to some specific scriptural command. Most of them had been shunned because of it, yet despite that, they all felt safe with Jesus. Now, are these the people who would feel welcome near us? Or would they be afraid to approach us because we haven't been perfected in love? You see? Third, finally, let's discuss why people are afraid. That is, why they keep the wounds of the past bottled up. Now, John, who spent three years with Jesus and was present at each of the encounters mentioned above uh, with all of those people, he provides us with a clue. After telling us that Telios love expels fear, perfect love casts out fear like a demon, he clearly explains why people are afraid. He writes in 1 John 4, 18, fear involves punishment. In each of the instances above, people who approached Jesus knew they'd find themselves pulled closer rather than pushed away and punished, regardless of how big and horrific the issue was, right? They didn't need to self-protect. They didn't need to preserve their dignity. They didn't need to hide behind a veil. He elevated them higher than they had ever been, even as many of them brought their biggest shame and disappointment to him. In another verse in the same chapter, John writes this in 1 John 4:12. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Notice what John says. Even though none of us have physically seen our Redeemer, we tangibly experience the complete manifestation of who he is when we encounter unconditional love from another human. That is, that's when we feel safe to be completely exposed and vulnerable. We know that the God kind of love is kicking in, and only that kind of love works. In fact, this is the kind of love that shreds fear and shame, truly breathing life into people. Imperfect, immature love, it does the exact opposite. It instills fear. It creates hiding. It empowers shame. It focuses on the rules rather than the relationship. It values written letters over love and action. Now, I can't imagine the atrocities of war. I've never been. There was an elderly gentleman who served as the librarian at a church I attended during seminary, and he was flabbergasted when Saving Private Ryan hit the big screen back in 1998. That's the year I was in seminary. Uh, Whereas critics and, uh, I guess I would say, like commoners like me praised its graphic depiction of the battlefront, he had a different take altogether. It's not real, he said. Everything I saw in Normandy was seven or eight times worse. The air was dirty. There were people falling next to you in gory ways the films can never depict. And the colors were different. The sound was deafening. The smell was something I'd never experienced. I remember standing there, his words engulfing me as he continued. 
I hope people never see what it's really like. It's horrific. War is hell on earth. Now, my naive 24-year-old self wondered what could possibly be more graphic than saving Private Ryan. I couldn't envision it, no matter how hard I tried. So I just listened to the man. After a few moments, he added, I don't know that many people around here would look at me the same way if they knew what that was really like. The things I experienced and the things I had to do. There it was, bullseye. Not just emotional wounds, but spiritual wounds. Moral damage. Moral injury. Something had stung his soul in the deepest way. He wasn't fighting or flighting, as is the case with PTSD. He carried guilt and shame. And this brave soldier who stared Hitler eye to eye was afraid of church people. Would we look at you the same? I asked. Yes. All of that destruction you see on the film and everything that happened during the war, that was done by people, by soldiers, by young men like me. Sadly, I never thought about that conversation again after that until I began writing notes for the Claim Your Freedom book and putting together some of these talks. In my mind, we had accepted him. He was the church librarian. He was one of us. But in his mind, he wasn't. He always carried around the baggage of things he held back, a skeleton in the closet that seemed infinitely scarier the longer it remained propped behind closed doors, and there it had been for decades. He was afraid that if he revealed that skeleton, we would shun him. And growing up in a religious environment, he'd probably seen enough evidence to verify that, yes, shunning happens. Sure, we cloak it in acceptable language, but we still do it. We shame people into silence about their biggest secrets, their deepest hurts. As I began writing Warrior Hope, Working my way back through the invisible scars and honoring the code documentaries and sitting across the table from numerous veterans of all ages, I heard the same refrain from many of them. I'm not so sure what my family would think of me if they knew the things that I did while I was over there. And if people understood how many things I had to do that I never thought I would ever do, or I feel like there's a me from over there that I would like to leave there, and I feel like there's a me now here, and there's a tension between these two. In other words, many of those people were afraid they wouldn't be accepted too. Now, all that said, let's talk about what this has to do with moral injury. Because moral injury occurs when the experiences or choices a person makes or is exposed to, even though through no fault of their own, when it conflicts with their personal code of conduct, their morals, their ethics, the things that we hold as right or wrong. As you can imagine, anyone struggling with this will feel great guilt and possibly shame. I just relayed what I've heard from soldiers, but the mantra is the same from people who experience moral injury for any reason. In the same way that soldiers don't have a corner on PTSD, they don't have a corner on moral injury. These are common human conditions. Now, let me tell you what the data reveals, and I promise you, you'll understand why 80% of this talk feels more like a Bible study than just a mere talk on, on freedom. It seems like a simple answer, but the data is consistent. Practitioners of healing who study moral injury from both secular sources and sacred sources, they agree that overcoming moral injury requires one thing. And you can't bottle it, you, you can't package it, and you can't actually mass deliver it. The all-too-uncommon cure for moral injury is, now get this, receiving forgiveness from someone the wounded person believes has the moral authority to grant that forgiveness. They need to hear the words, you're forgiven, you're accepted, 
It's the past, just like the librarian. Some even need to hear, I'm proud of the person you are. Others need to hear the words, I love you. Now, here's what's odd is the question is, who has the authority to gift these words to the person? And it depends on who the person needs it to be, according to all of the practitioners of of studying moral injury. In other words, it might be, now get this list, a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi, a former coach, an officer or soldier someone served with, or, or even people who served that they don't know personally. It could be someone else they perceive as a moral authority. In, in other words, it must be someone that they believe, that they sense, that they feel has the authority to impart that forgiveness. And it's at that point that the healing process often begins. It's, it's when they experience that perfect love, that mature, full-throttle love that is casting, expelling fear like a demon and they know they're not going to be punished, but they're going to be accepted and embraced. Now, I know, you might have been looking for a more revelatory answer for seven steps for a weekend retreat, a pilgrimage, or something akin to doing something significant rather than receiving something significant. Or if you come from a faith tradition like me, you might have even just winced a bit when I suggested that coaches and soldiers and teachers and anyone else can dispense forgiveness. I know, that sounds strange. But then there's this. During Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees regularly scolded him for forgiving people. In their mind, only God could do that. Like, look at Mark 2.7, for instance, with the healing of the paralytic that was lowered through the roof, and Jesus forgives his sins before he heals the man. In response to all of this, at the end of his time on earth, Jesus did something incredibly interesting. We find it in John chapter 20. After they discovered the empty tomb, the disciples hid in the upper room, afraid that they might be killed too. And then Jesus appeared to them behind the locked door, showing that our emotional duress, I mean, even fear itself, it doesn't hinder him from finding us. John tells us that when he was up there, he appeared to them behind locked doors, that he then breathed the Holy Spirit on them. And then he declared, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That's in John 20, 23. Clearly, right here, he expanded the power of imparting forgiveness farther and wider than the religious elite of the day dreamed possible. Not, not only could God in heaven forgive sins, but his son certainly could. And not only could that son forgive sins, but all of the king's sons and daughters now could. And, and perhaps this is why Jesus said that all men will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That's in John 13, 34 and 35. You see, love communicates something else that nothing else can. Love is the greatest possible revelation to an unbelieving or desperately wanting to believe world. Love creates sacred space where much needed healing happens. And remember, sacred and secular professionals alike agree that freedom is found in forgiveness. Now, if you're suffering from guilt or shame, let me remind you that you can always find a story to back your perception that you'll be rejected. Uh, personally, I revealed the most to the person I loved the best and I was shunned the hardest. And like the vet in the church library, I've learned that some of the biggest offenders of loving people imperfectly are the most oblivious to it. Even using pop psychology, Bible verses, and well-worn phrases that sound more cliche than real. 
but that's not the norm. Most people want to dispense grace because at the core, they know that they've needed it before and they'll need it again. And freedom is always found on the other side of transparency, not the hiding side, but the clear wide and the open, open up the closet and let the skeleton fall outside. And perhaps you need to let go of the things you've done or you need to let go of the weight of the things that you've experienced, things that were done to you or things that you witnessed firsthand, whatever the case, freedom is found in the light. That means it's time to label it, light it up and let it go. And remember, as we talked about in the first talk in this whole series, not everyone needs access to your story. You may decide to talk to more people in the future, but freedom in the area that you're hiding, it begins the instant that you talk to the few, those people that are in the inner circle, the people that are close to you that we talked about really in that intro talk, you see? So here is my prayer. Is twofold. Number one, if you're on the side of people who are needing forgiveness, is that the Lord would be gracious to you, that he would bless you and keep you, that you would see his face a favor of light calling you out of the darkness into the light, that you would come in there and let that light penetrate the dark places and realize that you are forgiven, that grace has done its great work and that you are accepted. And if you're someone who perhaps needs to dispense forgiveness, may you resist the urge to blame someone and to say that they're hiding because they just don't get it. And may you pursue them as God in heaven has pursued you. And may you love them perfectly, putting the onus of acceptance, not on the person who needs the acceptance, but on the person who can grace it, who can gift it, who can forgive it. And for those of you who don't have a person to go to, my encouragement to you is that you are forgiven, that on the cross, Jesus said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, even though they actually thought that they did. And let freedom, as Martin Luther King said, let it just ring and reverberate, not down the halls of the schools and not down the streets of this land, but may it ring and reverberate through your soul. Grace, peace, shalom.